I've seen American flowers all across this land from the banks of the Shenandoah along the Rio Grande. Do not feel the Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Voices of Wisdom podcast. I'm your host, Tony Caldwell. Today I'm in conversation with Dov Barron. Dov Barron is the dragonist. He's Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speaker, the number one Fortune 500 podcast host, Entrepreneur Magazine contributor, and loyalty authority. Dov guides people in how to recognize and nurture dragons, the top talent hidden within their organizations. A dragon leader is not a position, it's someone who's always pushing to improve and wants those that they serve to reach their full potential. I think you'll find that Dov's humor and no bullshit style is absolutely contagious. As a master storyteller, he's considered to be the leading authority on actualized leadership. Actualized leadership means getting the results that you set out to achieve in the most meaningful manner. Dov is also the best-selling author of two books, One Red Thread and Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. Dov has been named one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers to hire and one of the top 30 global leadership gurus. He's spoken at the United Nations, the World Management Forum, and the New York National Speakers Association. He has spoken to the United Nations, the World Management Forum, the New York National Speakers Association, and the Servant Leadership Institute. Dov believes that the world needs more dragon leaders, people who are committed to living their purpose, standing in their truth, and empowering others to find their fire and do the same. I'm proud to count Dov Barron as a friend, and I always come away from our conversations feeling absolutely invigorated. I hope this episode inspires you to, like Dov, live from a deep place, to create from a deep place, to communicate, and to love from a deep place. And without further delay, here's my conversation with Dov Barron. Dov Barron, thank you for being on the Voices of Wisdom podcast. Hey, mate, I am so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, love it when you and I get to chat because uh, we go deep when we get real. And that's definitely what we're going to do today. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Yeah, you've become one of my favorite people to talk to um, <laughs> during our last... for anybody else. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so I wanted to start with asking you how you are experiencing the world uh, today. You know, the, it's kind of two-sided, Tony, because, um, you know, I, I think I told you that I did a video and, I, and the video was called I'm Afraid. And, and I... And, you know, as a white guy, people thought that that meant something, and it actually meant the opposite. When I say uh, I'm afraid, what I was actually referring to is that I'm afraid that people will buy a bigger rug and sweep everything that's going on, on under it, because that's what we tend to do as human beings. We tend to uh, hold back from what is real. We tend to want to keep things nice and not deal with what needs to be dealt with. And that's a real concern for me. That is something that I am very concerned about. And this, by the same means, um, I'm also very clear that I am genuinely concerned for the state of the U.S. right now and potentially for the world, because I think in many ways the U.S. is uh, certainly a microcosm of the macrocosm of the first world. And the the ever broadening movement towards dictatorial strongman leadership, uh, the tribal behavior of people is very concerning. So I, on one side, I'm I'm very in favor of of a, a, a civil revolution that creates uh, equality and balance in in a, in a much healthier manner, and on the other side, I'm concerned that people will take that to the nth degree as they get created and pushed into more and more of a divide. Mm, yeah. I've thought about the fact that you're in Canada and how it must be, uh, the view from there must be more objective than 
than what we're able to have here because we're just in it, you know, mm-hmm. in real time as it's happening. And, and I'm imagining, you know, many Canadians must be thinking, what in the world is going on in the collective consciousness south of this border, you know? You know, it's very interesting, Tony. I had this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday who is also a Canadian. And we were talking about how there is a local election going on, um, a, a, a provincial, I'll quote your thinking, state election going on, and how few people are informed about that state election that is going on right now. And the reason is, is because our media is co-opted by American politics and by what essentially is the dumpster fire um, that is going on at the highest highest possible end of uh, a political um, battle, one might say. So it's interesting that we have this wonderful objectivity about the American political situation, but as with anything, it's kind of a squirrel situation, meaning that uh, I've said very often that I think that Donald Trump is a masterful guy. I don't think he's anything like brilliant or genius or or stable genius or any of those terms, but I think he's masterful at stealing the mic. He's masterful at stealing, stealing the light and making it go to what he wants to go to. Whether you agree with him or disagree with him, he is masterful at that. And the problem with that is that oftentimes we lose focus on what really matters, and that is a challenge. And and any strongman leader can do that. That's what Bolsonaro was doing in Brazil. That's what Rodrigo did in, in uh, the Philippines. It's what Putin does. It's what any of those strong-arm leaders do. That's a big concern for me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, it kind of brings up the question between uh, power and force. Absolutely, yes. And you, uh, you've, you've been working uh, and focusing on on leadership for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, what a what a time right now to be having a conversation about leadership as it is and how it could be. And I'm wondering if you were an advisor to U.S. politicians right now. And we're trying to lead them towards the kind of deep, meaningful, related, service-oriented leadership that you teach and advocate for and model. Mm-hmm. What what exactly you might uh, say to them right now? What a powerful question. Thank you. Um, I think the most important thing is, obviously, it's an obvious statement to say we can't we can't divide people. We have to bring people together. Okay, but. That's obvious. What I would say is this, what's not so obvious that we need to focus in on is let's take a little bit of a retrospective. And the retrospective will take us back to the original um, general election that led up to the inauguration of Barack Obama. When Barack Obama was running, George Bush had been uh, in power for two uh, consecutive Um, presidential seats, and people were sick. They wanted something new. They wanted something different. Along came a man of color who was articulate. You know, George Bush had been the decider. Um, And and I, and I'll be honest, I was very excited about having a highly educated, articulate man of color. I was very inspired by Martin Luther King, and it was like, okay, maybe there's another chance here. Um, and I love the U.S., which is weird, I know, because I live in Canada, but I fell in love with the U.S. as a kid. So I was very inspired. I've followed American politics since I was a child. So I was very inspired by Barack Obama, by these, you know, hope speeches and all this. And then what happened when Obama got in? Again, I was happy. My wife and I, my wife is a person of color. We cried when he was inaugurated. And we were pretty disappointed in what he did with the power he had. I'm not suggesting his hands weren't tied. I'm not suggesting he didn't have the battle in in Congress and in in the Senate. Of course he did. I'm not taking any of that away. But he was a corporate Democrat, and things didn't change much. 
And if you think the people didn't notice, this is me talking to leaders of today. If you think the people didn't notice, I got news for you, they did. And if you think that the that, uh, Donald Trump was made president by a bunch of redneck um, racist individuals, you're terribly, terribly wrong. That is not how he was elected. He was elected by people, the same people who put Barack Obama in power, who wanted change. They wanted something different. And they figured, okay, well, Barack didn't do it. We need an outsider. Here's Donald Trump. He's an outsider. And they put him in power. So, yes, they wanted different. So my advice to leaders of today is very simple. Start looking at what people want that's different. See, right now you've got Joe Biden running and people will likely vote for him because they just are sick of the dumpster fire and the new new crazy every day that is going on and they just want a breathing space. But at the end of that run, they're still going to come back to, oh, but we want something different. And if the U.S. politics don't change that, that is what is going to cause the revolution, is that you can't go from it, it never going to change, it's always going to be the same, to a new crazy. You actually have to have a sane shift to change that shows people who are in the middle between the left and the right who are just saying, this system sucks. And all we've got is this extreme left and extreme right. And what we want is a healthy American way. That's what I would say. And that, my friends, is going to always be based on meaning. My, my strategy for it is, I'll just tell you very simply, three simple steps. There's complexities to them, but they are three simple steps. And that is curiosity. The world will be changed by curiosity. Not by love, not by kumbaya, not by curiosity. Be willing to get curious about the people on the other side of your argument. Then you need courage because curiosity without courage is simply asking questions. And questions are about making people wrong. Are you right? Curiosity is about understanding, having the courage to listen and the courage to take action, even when it doesn't come from the place that you thought it should come from. And from there, you get meaning. But courage on its own is just adrenaline. Curiosity on its own is just accumulation of knowledge. And then you get to meaning. But meaning on its own is nothing more than navel gazing. It's the combination of the three. Curiosity, courage, taken into meaning that drives action. That is the path forward. And you just described the exact opposite of American politics. <laughs> oh man. Would you say that that that's obviously part of a philosophy of life for you and I, I'm sure that your philosophy of life has many layers and uh is too comprehensive to to lay out in in a short time today but what what would you say is like the core or the centerpiece of your philosophy of life? The core of of my philosophy of life really um, comes down to um, a simple thing for me is that uh, I'll tell you my meaning of life and that may give you the context of which to understand all this. You know, I'm known as the dragonist. That's my sort of moniker. Um, And when people ask me, well, what is your dragon fire? And dragon fire is not your why. Uh, I love people pursuing their why. That's great. But your dragon fire is deeper than that. It's the why of your why. And so when people ask me what mine is, the answer is this. I am here to impact the lives of those people whose names I will never know and who may never know my name. In other words, I'm here to do something that I won't necessarily see the payoff for. It's bigger than me. And as the dragonist, my job is to find the dragon fire inside of you and help you to give yourself the wings to fly as high and as broad as you need to go, but to breathe fire onto the lies you've been conditioned to believe, particularly about yourself. 
So, you know, so the first place a dragon has to breathe fire onto is the, their own lies, the lies you tell yourself about how you're small, how you are um, incapable, how you are, you can't make a difference. It's not true. But it really helps the people who grab power to stay on to their power. You are incredibly powerful and you have enormous gifts to bring. Rosa Parks, we all know that name, but that's one old lady on a, on a bus. I mean, think about that. One old lady, older, not old, but older lady on a bus who said no. We all know her name. One person. She didn't have political power. We talk about Martin Luther King. We could talk about Gandhi. Those are people who inspire me enormously. But Rosa Parks, wow. Just a normal, average, everyday person whose name we all know. Think of her as your inspiration. Think of her. She is my wife's inspiration. Think of her as the person who teaches you it's just one person saying no to what's wrong. That's what counts. Mm. So her dragon fire that has impacted lives ever since she said no. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, see, this is the thing is that we think about, you know, oh, it's grandiose. No, it's not. It's not grandiose. Something minuscule can create an entire movement. And by the way, just so everybody understands, Rosa Parks was not the first person to do that. There was a young girl who did it who was 15 years old before her. But that didn't get as much press. Hmm. So does it take one person? Yes. But it takes one person and then 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 one person. And then all of a sudden it's noticed and there's a movement. Mm. So just because, again, I'm here to impact the lives of the people who may never know my name and whose name I may never know. That's exactly my point. One person, then one person, then one person, then one person. I, you know, I may have touched somebody's life who who doesn't even remember I did it. But they will touch somebody's life who may not remember they did it and on and on and on and on and on. And that message gets spread through deep curiosity. Now, remember, I said curiosity, and I want to reiterate this. It's not questions. People think curiosity and questions are the same. They're not. This is a central piece to my philosophy. Questions require answers, and answers give us the opportunity to make somebody wrong and make ourselves right. Curiosity requires understanding. It's an ever-deepening set of questions. It's not a final question. It's not a right, wrong, yes, no, black, white. It's curiosity. Explain that to me. Wow, that's interesting. Tell me more. How did you get to that? That's Wow, that's fascinating. How did you come to that place? What makes you think that? How did you go to that? What, what was it about that that made you think this? It's ever-deepening understanding. Hmm. Yeah, Live it, living the questions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you talk about the lies that inform our, our sense of self or, or mm-hmm. provide limitations for us, it makes me think of uh, the topic of identity. And, uh, you know, you, you've described identity, you know, as being rooted in meaning and purpose. But I'm thinking about the socialization and, and just all the uh, all the input, you know, from all of our experiences and things we've seen and heard um, throughout our lives and how that informs this sort of, you know, um, lowercase s self. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and there's a whole concept of more of a more capital S self mm-hmm. or the larger self or innate self. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what what navigating that has been like for you personally and professionally uh, to to kind of remove some of those um, <laughs> the the information and misinformation that's told us who we are more than asked us who we are and 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 sort of distilling or getting down to what that original self might even be. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the areas that, you know, I know from our previous conversations where you and I cross over is in um, the examination of addictions and what drives addictions. And I made a video yesterday where I talked about the ultimate addiction. And And I talked about mainlining the ultimate addiction and how we 
will walk down the street and we will judge the guy with a needle in his arm or the guy who is stoned on something talking to a cardboard box or the guy stumbling down the street because he or she is so drunk that they can barely hold it together. And I say, you know, it's very easy for us to to look and judge. But what's your addiction? Is was the question in the video. What's your addiction? Because the ultimate addiction is identity. Neurologically, neurochemically, the number one addiction is identity. And if I sit, go out there in the world and say to people, okay, what's what's more powerful? identity or life almost everybody will say life but it's not true it's actually identity how do i know because people will willingly strap a bomb on themselves and blow up themselves i.e remove their lives in order to hold on to an identity that's how ingrained the addiction to identity is and so most people will never confront their identity until they confront their death. That's why that's the central premise of Buddhism. Death, death of the little self. The willingness to let something die that you've been holding on to. So as you know, back in 1990, um, I was free climbing, which is climbing without ropes, uh, sport for the, for the moderately insane. But I was doing it soaking wet which is a sport for the totally insane. Um, and I fell approximately 120 feet, which in case you're wondering what that is, it's about 12 stories mm. with no ropes and got smashed to pieces. And if you'd have asked me, is my life on purpose five minutes before I would have said yes, but I just didn't understand that I was so addicted to my own identity. And that battle, internal battle, um, that, shattering of my body was also the shattering of my heart, my soul, my mind, and most definitely my identity. And I had to really ask myself, why am I here? What is the point of this? What is the meaning of my life? If the meaning isn't the accolades, if the meaning isn't the applause, if the meaning isn't the income, why am I here? And that was a very dark night of the soul, the deep dive into the darkness of my own soul to really understand my purpose in life. What was my dragon fire? And you cannot get to your dragon fire until you confront the addiction to your identity. And yeah, everybody says to me, well, that sounds pretty dark. It is. You cannot get to the light without going through the darkness. You must confront the dark night of your own soul. But when you do that, the treasure you will find will bring value to you and to every single life you touch. That's why you're here. You did not get your hopes and your dreams by mistake. They are your heart and soul crying out for expression. But that expression cannot take place when you are addicted to your identity. Mm. Man, I love that. You know I'm a Jungian and that's... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean... You're talking about shadow work and death of the ego and absolutely yeah yeah the alchemy the internal alchemy of it all it sounds like uh the the smashing of your body forged and shaped your character in a new way that wasn't based around ego well it's, it's interesting tony because that is the assumption but it's actually a, a false assumption and not that you're wrong but here's what i mean is because people will always say, falling off that mountain must have changed you. It didn't. It embedded me. Yeah. People say, what do you mean? I said, my ego got stronger, not weaker. When I fell and people said to me, how are you doing? My jaw was wired closed, and I'd say, I'm great. I'm great. I'd say, I'm coming back. Because I was born in the ghetto. I would have been a martial artist. I'd been a boxer. I'd been a leader. I'd been a psychologist. I knew how to be strong. I knew how to lead. So I didn't, I didn't no way I was going to admit defeat. I'd say, I'm, I'm great. I'm coming back. But we all know that's not evolution. It's not devolution. There is no back. There's only forward. So when I fell and I got smashed to pieces, 
I was deep, more deeply embedded. I fell in June of 1990. In November of 1990, I went bungee jumping at 140 feet, <laughs> at 14 stories high, with my jaw wired closed. So I was, it did not break open my ego at all. Okay. It embedded it. I got more embedded. And when people would say to me, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm great, etc." And I would go out with my mates on the weekends and I would sort of pretend I would doing this act that I was having a good time to, you know, to feel like I was going to go back to normal. And I keep saying, I'm coming back. And and I, I would be out and I'd come home and I'd be miserable. I think, oh my God, I d have I lost my sense of humor? You know, I've lost my identity. I don't know who I am anymore. And I would say that all the time. I don't know who I am anymore. And I would weep silently about that without anybody knowing in the privacy of my own home. I would just be in this very, very dark, dark depression. And then one night I went out with the lads and I, I actually had a good night. The The wire was off my jaw. I was laughing. I had a good night. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe maybe I am coming back. And I was filled with joy as I opened the back door. And as I opened the back door, the light from the outer porch shone in across the kitchen. As it shone in across the kitchen, the light hit the kitchen floor. And across the floor was festooned garbage. There was empty cans and meat wrappers and kitty litter and coffee grinds. And it was smelled awful and it was terrible. And I went from joy to fury, rage, filled with rage. And I knew exactly who the culprit was, and I wanted to kill the culprit. And I'd say that without hesitation, kill. I was filled with rage, and I just stomped through the house looking for that culprit. And when I got into the living room, there on the couch was the culprit, curled up, looking all nice and comfy, and I lifted my hand to strike. And about halfway down, I, something in me, Reminded me that that's not who I am. I'm not a violent person. And I stopped. And instead of striking, I actually put my hands underneath and picked up my cat. and brought my cat to my chest and fell to my knees because the cat was cold and was dead. Mm. And I began to weep. Not cry, but weep. Just like... <gasps> and I was just like a few minutes of doing that and realized, oh my God, I'm not crying for the cat. This is a cat I didn't even like. It wasn't my cat. Somebody had given it to me. I wasn't crying for the cat. I was crying for the life that was gone, my life. And I began to weep, and I fell on the floor and cried and cried and cried. And as I cried, I realized there is no back. I realized I had three choices. Was to keep trying to come back. That wasn't going to work. I'd already proved that to stay where I was, and by God, that was that was so seductive. That was so deliciously seductive. Like, to just stay the victim and say, you know, it's not my fault. This shitty thing happened to me. You know, and I could have been a champion. It could have been great. But, you know, that was so, so accessible. And then there was another part of me that says, you got to find out why you're here. I had to find my dragonfly. I had to find out why I was here. And I really remained in that dark, depressive state for another about nine months. It's actually an interesting gestation period. Mm. And asking myself, why am I here? And I'll tell you very quickly a quick story that uh, before I fell, I used to hold these Wednesday night open seat things where people would come in. You know, this would be these moments with the guru sort of nonsense. God, sort of embarrassing to actually say it, but, you know, people would come on a Wednesday night and they would all sit there and they'd ask me questions and, you know, in my infinite wisdom, I'd tell them, what a cheese ball. Um, <laughs> however, I would do that. And there was a lady who used to sit in the front named Mary. And, of course, I was gone for a year and a half. And when I started to come back and started to work with clients again, Mary was one of the first people who booked with me. And she says to me, in the session, she says to me, do you know why I used to come see you on a Wednesday night? And I said, no. She goes, I just found you to be so powerful. And I said, oh, yeah. And, okay. And she said, yeah, I really had this sense that you knew yourself better than anybody I'd ever met. You really knew who you were. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. And she said, yeah. I said, 
oh, is that it? And she says, no, I want to tell you something else. I said, what? She goes, I hope you won't be offended. And I said, no, I won't, I promise. And she said, I don't think you know who you are anymore. And I smiled at her. And I said, that's interesting too. And she says, but here's what's weird. And I said, what? She said, I find you more powerful than you were before. And I said, Mary, that's because I don't know who I am. And she goes, you don't? And I said, no. I know why I am, but I don't know who I am. And she goes, I don't understand. And I said, who I am changes in every single moment. I'm willing to be present with whatever shows up. But why I am is consistent. That's my dragon fire. That's why I'm here. That doesn't change. And who I am, yeah, I can be in a bad mood. I can be in a good mood. I can be upset. I can be happy. I can be sad. I can feel like having a good cry. I can feel like having a good laugh. All those things, that's just transient. That's the who I am that I used to be attached to that blocked me from being in why I am. Why I am is what matters. And that's why it's perceived as more powerful. And she said, that's the work I got to do. Man, I love that. It, it really, it really partially answers, or I guess, really mostly answers my next question. Uh, for, <laughs> I had my psychic underpants on. Yeah, for for, for uh, those of us uh, who maybe have experienced um, chronic depression, lifetime depression, or uh, maybe midlife, or for whatever reason, uh, changes, divorces, you know, grief, mm-hmm. loss, end up in a. Uh, a slump or a depressive rut and the kind where it's not just emotional, but there's just a loss of soul, a loss of energy, just lethargy every day. And mm-hmm. uh, there never seems to be a replenishment of the, the libido or the drive or the, the yeah. life force or the will to live or the lust for life. Sure. Uh, is, is, the, is there any trick or magic to that? Or is it what you just described, like submitting to that process of dying and, being reborn in a new way? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, thank you for this. I really, really am enjoying this. Um, so the thing I want to say to everybody is this. If you're in that place, and I definitely have been, and not just on that fall, but in previous times as well, um, what I want to say to you is this, and I hope you will write this down. Loneliness is when you are missing you. Loneliness is when you are missing you. Not you, the identity, not you, the ego, but you, your own heart, your own soul. Your depression is, and you know, I know you understand this, Tony, as a Jungian, but your depression is from repression. What re- what we repress within us creates our depression, it depresses us. And when we are repressed, when we've repressed our own soul, when we've repressed the truth of who we are, when we've repressed that dragon fire within us, we become depressed. And when we're depressed, the natural inclination of that is to oppress others. So this is why society, society, does this over and over again. We, we, we create our own little clan, our own little tribe, our own little cult, where we're telling people to, to do what we're doing because we're repressed, so you should be repressed. And if we all repress together, then we can all say it's normal. Normal isn't healthy. Normal is just whatever the hell you got used to, and most of it's pretty dysfunctional. <laughs> normal isn't healthy. Normal is just whatever you got used to. Question normal. If you're depressed and you're feeling like, oh, my God, how do I get out of this? Instead of asking that question, ask yourself, what have I made normal that isn't healthy? That is your up ladder. That's how you start to crawl out of this. Because you will have to fight against the normal that you've had in your life, which means you will go into conflict with others who you've surrounded yourself with, and most people would rather die than let go of their identity. People suicide because they cannot face 
letting go of their identity. That is the battle. The dark night of the soul is the giving up of your identity, which is not you. You will always have an identity, but let it be fluid. As soon as it becomes rigid, you are repressed. You have to repress another part of you. You are a diamond. Let your light shine. You are a diamond. You don't have a single facet. You are a multifaceted being. And many of your facets are contradictory. My wife will often say to me, she'll hear me in a conversation with somebody who I'm trying to help, and she'll say to me, my God, you are so patient. I couldn't have that patience. And then I'm on the road driving, and she goes, oh, my God, you are the most impatient man I've ever met. <laughs> Both of those things are true. You are allowed contradictions. That's what makes you human. Embrace that, and you'll find the wholeness of yourself. I am the most deeply philosophical person you could ever meet, and I am just a loon who loves a good ass or joke and I'm politically incorrect and I say things that I just like have, you know, totally seem unspiritual. They're all facets of me. <laughs> oh, man. I love it. <laughs> you may have just liberated a, uh, a few people. Good. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm feeling it. The young evangelical in me wants to go, amen. <laughs> I feel a healing coming on. <laughs> yeah. I'll stand and say, can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So what is something that you have learned about leadership from marriage? Oh, what a great question. <laughs> well, so my bride and I actually have a private training we do for couples because we have a very, very different philosophy around relationship. We've been together for about 25 years, and most people are pretty envious of our relationship, and, and we always tell them, don't be envious. It's really simple. We do a lot of work. So one of the things we've learned about, I've learned about leadership from my marriage is, number one, you're never there. So let me explain that to you in the context of leadership. My wife, when, when people say, what is your secret? And we say it's, we have two secrets. They're not secrets, but they're the two keys. And the people are like, okay, what are they? You know, on the edge of the seat, want to know what it is. And they're the same things for leadership. And we go, okay, what are they? Number one, divorce is always an option. People are like, really? I'm so surprised. I mean, I would think that you guys would be so committed that divorce would never be an option. No, no. We're so committed that divorce is always an option. They go, what do you mean? If I'm not treating my partner right, she has the right to divorce me at any moment. She can walk away at any moment, and I have the same right. So we look at it from the point of view of divorce is always an option for my partner. As a leader, you have to understand that your people always have the option of divorcing you. They have the option of no longer following you. You are not the only, uh, only choice there is. If you're not treating your people right, they can walk away. That's number one. That's what my relationship has taught me about leadership, is do not take your leadership position for granted, ever. If somebody is being led by you, it's by their permission, not yours. Mm. Number one. Number two. Here's, this is fascinating. We're invited to a wedding in the Caribbean. Uh, my wife did not know anybody at that wedding. I knew the bride, and that's why we were invited. And a bunch of people had gotten to know us through my relationship with the bride. And the, at the gift thing, the bride saying to my wife, oh, I so admire you. And I was like, well, I don't know what. She says to her, I don't know why. We've never met. She goes, no, the way Dove speaks about you. And she says, what's the secret? And we would watch this bride with her new husband, and we, I had seen photographs of her fiancé, the same guy, but when they were engaged, and I didn't recognize him at the wedding. He just didn't even look like the same guy. He'd lost so much weight, and, you know. And my wife just leans into her, and she said, the key is that we're not trying to change each other. We have an agreement that neither of us 
has the right to ask the other one to change. We have the right to call each other out on not stepping up, but that's different than asking them to change. I don't ask my wife to change anything. She doesn't ask me to change anything about me. Mm. However, if I put forward, hey, I really want to grow in this area and I'm not doing it, would you help me by calling me out on that? That's a different story. But my wife's saying, well, I want you to change this because I don't like it. I don't like that you get up early in the morning and go to the gym. That's never going to happen. She's never going to say that to me. It's never going to happen. There are things that I might not prefer in her. That's not my shit. That's for me to deal with. It's got nothing to do with her. So we don't ask each other to change. When you meet your people, when you are leading your people, you have to stop and do that. You have to say, okay, who are they? What is it they want to grow? Not what is it I think they should grow? Because by the way, potential is a paradox because you can see potential in somebody and they'll never live it because they don't want to. That's fine. You've got to find out what it is they want to step into. Ask them what they want to be called out on to grow. But you don't have the right to ask them to change. Mm. That's key. So no changing. Certainly growing, developing, deepening a person. Yes, absolutely. Totally in favor of that. We want to do that as leaders and in our relationships of all kinds. Mm. And divorce is always an option. Treat your people so well that they can leave you, but they won't. That's not mine. That's Richard Branson's. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like as we've evolved from um, more agrarian or agricultural societies that the function of marriage has changed to require mutual growth, not just self-preservation. And there's there's something also that in what you said that reminds me of something I often say to couples when we're doing couples work is, you know, how do you co-create a situation where you get to keep choosing one another? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, where there's not the sense of obligation being the centerpiece of a, of a union between two people. Well, so deadening. That's a great point because um, what we know is, uh, and you know this too, Tony, but what we know is as psychologists is that the number one predictor of divorce, I ask people this all the time, what do you think the number one predictor of divorce? And they'll say, they used to say affairs. Now people are a bit smarter. They understand it's not that. And they go, well, it's money. Actually, it's not. That's the reason, number one reason given is arguments about money, but it's actually not money. And they go, well, what is it? It's resentment. Hmm. Resentment is the number one killer of relationships. And that's not my opinion. That's researched because resentment comes from disdain. And where does disdain come from? Compromise. And the number one thing you were taught in a, to do in relationship was to compromise. It's a terrible thing to do. Look up the word to weaken. That's what it means to weaken. Why the hell would I compromise my marriage? Why would I weaken my marriage? That's a terrible thing to do. Let's cooperate. Yes. Let's not compromise. I don't want you to walk away feeling like you gave something up. I want you to walk away feeling like you won, and I want to feel like I won. That we And the, it, what is the way for us to both win? What is the way for us to co-create together? What is the way for us to choose each other every single day rather than build resentment out of some obligated bullshit relationship that I have no interest in? Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I don't want a compromised relationship. I want a co-created, co-promised relationship that challenges each of us to grow every single day so that that resentment, that disdain is not there. Yes. To, to kind of keep the topic of, of relationship going for a moment, you know, mm -hmm. if, if someone said, you know, what, who's the person that kind of represents the opposite of being a bullshitter, I would say, Doc Barron. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, I take that as a huge compliment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And what I, what I wanted to ask you about that is, you know, you you're brutally honest, you're direct, but you speak the truth in love in a way that it can be received, and that seems like the exact opposite of codependence to me. And I'm wondering, how in the hell did you? get to this place when there's so many societal pressures and familiar pressure pressures and uh, morality and all these other 
mm-hmm. you know, shaming type messages that tend to shut us down and either make us um, pleasers or to sort of overcompensate and go in the other way and be really uh, aggressive and, and not very healthy. And you seem to have found a really nice balance there. And I'm wondering if you have any words of wisdom about that. Thank you. Um, I want to start by, first of all, addressing something that is a lexicon of language that is not helpful. Um, I have no interest whatsoever of being brutally honest. Um, I have no interest in being brutal about anything. Um, I don't see myself as brutally honest. I see myself as deeply, lovingly, compassionately honest. Um, You can receive it as brutality, but it will never, ever leave me as that. So I think it's a problem with our language. We assume Mm. honesty is brutal, and it's not. Mm. It is direct. It is so deeply loving that I won't lie to you. I love you so much that I will not lie to you. There's nothing brutal about that. Mm -hmm. That is deeply loving and caring and compassionate. So that's the first thing. Let's drop that language around brutal honesty. It doesn't help anybody because nobody wants to be brutal and nobody wants to be brutalized. So let's get rid of it and let's embrace rather to be deeply honest, to be deeply compassionately truthful. Yeah, I'm in favor of that. The journey for me has been in this is I, I mean, I was about as codependent as you could get. I have been in relationships before the one I'm in now. And I, yeah, I was very clear that they were codependent and dysfunctional at every possible level. And that's part of the problem. This model of compromised relationship is exactly that. It's compromised, and so it breeds codependency, and and more more brutally, I think it 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 breeds account keeping. Well, I, I compromised on this, so you got to compromise on that. Um, hold on, did I marry an accountant? No, I'm not doing that. Right? This is not this is not account keeping. I'm not interested. Like so, I remember when my when my mom first came to visit, um, and I was working, and she flew over here to visit and she spent the day with my wife and my mom can, you know, she can wear on you a bit. And my wife says, you know, I said, I was the day she goes, you owe me. And I said, no, I don't. And she goes, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I said, okay, good. Cause I don't owe you a damn thing. You don't owe me anything when I do something for you. I do it for you as an act of love and caring and compassion, or I don't do it. So we don't do obligations, even a family dues. So my wife will say, oh, the family's having a Christmas thing. Do you want to come? She doesn't, when they say, you know, do you guys want to come? She doesn't say yes. She says, let me ask Dove if he wants to come. I'm saying yes, but I can't answer for him. People ask me about her. I say, I can't answer for her. You can ask her. I can ask you, ask her for you, but I can't answer for her. Yeah. So it's this understanding. There's this wonderful, you know, one of my Bibles is Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. Yes. If you haven't read, if, you, if you're hearing this and you haven't read that book, go read it. There's, it's all written in these beautiful poems that are very easy to understand. And, and there's one on, on marriage. And it says, let your, let your relationship be the pillars of the temple. They do not stand together. They stand separately. And the oak and the cypress do not stand next to each other. It's this understanding that, we need to stand separate in order to be strong and let our branches intermingle. That's what we're trying to do. That's what it's actually about. I want to fully support my partner in being the amazing human being they are. And I want to give you an example of this because particularly for us men, we're not, we're so conditioned around this terrible things around, around what it takes to be a man. So, you know, I had done a lot of work before I met my wife, a lot of work. I was already 20 years into the work on myself. Um, and one time we were just starting to live together. And on a Friday night, my wife would come home in a bad mood pretty consistently because on a Friday night, she would see her ex-husband uh, while picking up or dropping off the kids, the, our two sons. 
um, who were at that time nine and 10. And every time she dropped them off, he would be extremely abusive. He is, I think there's a technical term for it. Oh, a dick. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a psychological term you may not. <laughs> yeah, it's um, in the DSM 5. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking, you're younger psychology. But you're younger. Anyway, so she would always come home in these terrible moods. And I would kind of, you know, it's none of my business. Okay. I'd try and be there for her, but that was it. But one time she comes home and she is in a foul mood. Not with me, but she's she's not just, she's not angry. She's sad. She's deeply sad. And I'm like, what's going on, babe? And she tells me about it. And I said, and she says, look, you are a communications expert. You've explained to me that there's a neuro association between my face and his anger. Yep. And you're an, and you are a communications expert. He doesn't have that association with you. And you know all the communication skills. Could you go and talk to him for me? Every cell in my body wanted to say yes. Every part of me that is trained to be the, the savior male wanted to go into the stable and get my white horse and ride over there, <laughs> clicking coconuts together to pretend I'm going to save her. Every part of me. And I had to say, I can't do that, babe. And she said, why? I said, it would be horribly disempowering to you. Now, I want you to be clear. If my wife was here, she'd tell you. That did not make her happy. She was not happy. She was trained in the same societal marital process as I was, as you were, as every one of us listening was. That, you know, in these situations, the man's supposed to ride to the rescue. And my wife's a pretty powerful, strong woman, but that conditioning came up. And she was pissed. She didn't talk to me that night or the next day. The following Friday, the situation repeats. She goes to get the kids, um, meets with her ex-husband. He walks up to the car window and starts to do his usual tirade of abuse. She winds up the window on both sides. She locks the doors. He's still shouting at her. And she just looks at him and says, I'm done. She comes home. There's a little more to that story, but she comes home and she's in a fantastic mood. And I said, oh, you're in a great mood. And she says, yeah. And I said, what happened? She goes, I'm done. And I go, you're done with what? She goes, I told him, I'm never putting up with his abuse again, and I will never speak to him again. I don't have to tolerate abuse because he's the father of my children. I'm done. Mm. She was glowing, and she was empowered. She has never spoken to that man until last summer when one of our sons got married, and he was there. And the only reason she spoke to him is because she, he took her completely by surprise, and she didn't recognize him because she hadn't seen him in 20 years. <laughs> she never spoke another word to the man, but she owned her power because yeah. I didn't behave like a rescuer. Did I feel like a dick? Yes. Did I feel terrible for not rescuing her? Yes. Did she not like that I didn't rescue her? Yes. But was it the right move? Yes. Codependence is easier. Please get that. And you'll get a round of applause. Yeah. But that's not the same as having an empowered, loving relationship. And as a leader, that's how you've got to be with your people. Stop rescuing them. As a leader, you're not there to rescue them. You're there to empower them, to have them see their magnificence. It doesn't matter whether it's a marriage or it's a leadership position. Your job is to empower, not disempower. And if I'd have rescued her, I would have disempowered her. Hmm. Dob, you, you're a... Uh... Man, we're in tune today. My very next question was about empowerment. <laughs> and you, just, yeah, you already covered that. So I, I just have two more questions. Sure. Uh, one is, you know, something struck me the last time we talked, uh, right before we uh, ended our conversation, you, you basically said, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, you know, you, you, your role in this life is to serve. And one of the questions you had was, you know, how can I serve you? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, um, 
you know, if, if there's anything you could say within two or three minutes about, about what service means to you and how you came to that place inside of you. Yeah. Again, great question. Um, I came to that place because, um, I can't remember the actual situation at this moment. Um, but I remember doing something for somebody, um, out of the goodness of my heart and for whatever reason, that person showed zero gratitude. Um, and a friend of mine who was telling me about it, you know, how come this person never did, never even said thank you, never did anything. And I said, doesn't matter. And I said, and they said, why? I said, because I suddenly realized that my generosity had strings before. Service is to give without strings. I don't have that anymore. I Being of service is I'm here to serve. I will not be abused. And there's a distinction there. But if I'm going to give something, I have to give it. I remember exactly what it was. Thank you. There you go. Uh, my brother came to me and he asked me for $2,100 because he wanted to put a night on. He was a DJ. And he said, I'll pay you back. And I said, well, I can't give you the money because I don't have money. We have money. That's my wife and I. But I'll ask her and we'll talk about it. And she came to me and, and she said the same thing as she always does, which is, yeah, sure, you can do whatever you want. She said, but if you think you're loaning the money to your brother, you're insane. Because we both know your brother and we both know you're never going to get the money back. So if you want to gift it to him, gift it to him. And if you can't gift it to him, don't give it him. And I went, oh, great. And that's what happened. I gave him the money. And he says, yeah, I'll give it you back. And I was like, okay. Uh, and he, you know, he was grateful at the time, but he never said thank you afterwards. And he never paid me the money back. And I was good with it because I understood service is no strings. Mm. That's what it means to me. Mm. Giving because that is your inclination to give, not to get the payoff. Yeah. Mm. So, Dov, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm, I'm going to leave you with the final question that I ask each guest as we come to a close, and that is, uh, is this. Right now in this moment, not yesterday or tomorrow, but just right now in this, this very moment, what is your wisdom for a suffering world? Stay curious, my friend. Stay curious. Answers require, uh, questions require answers. Curiosity requires understanding. Stay curious, my friend. Stay curious. Be curious from a place of compassion, from a place of empathy, from a place of wanting to understand what you do not understand. Your upsetment, your aggression, your whatever it is, we all have it, me too. When you have that, it's simply that you don't understand yet. So just do your best to understand. Stay curious, my friend. Stay curious. Thank you for that. And thank you for being with us today, Dav. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I uh, just appreciate you so much. Tony, it is always a pleasure and an honor to be with you, my friend. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. And I want to let everybody know, listen, you know, Tony's put this the time and the energy into to be of service to you, to give you this podcast. Please, please get out there, share it. Share the wisdom with other people. Um, subscribe, review, and share the show with other people. And what's more is let Tony know what you got out of it. You can let me know. You can write to me personally. It's easy, dov, D-O-V, at dovbaron.com, D-O-V, at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. But write to Tony. Tell him what you got out of this and what you're going to do with it. Because information without application is worth the whole in the donut. Transformation comes from application. Tell him what you're going to do with it and share it with others. Don't hoard wisdom. Don't hoard the knowledge. Be generous with it. Awesome. Thank you for that, Dov. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Voices of Wisdom podcast. If you'd like to know more about Dov Barron, you can find him at DovBarron.com. You can find his books, One Red Thread and Fiercely Loyal, 
wherever books are sold. Dov is also a high-end life coach serving celebrities and many leaders of top organizations and corporations. If you'd like to know more about those services, you can find links to those at DovBaron.com. D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. In June 1990, while free rock climbing, Dov fell approximately 120 feet and landed on his face. The impact shattered most of the bone structure of his face. After 10 reconstructive surgeries, no external evidence remains. However, this experience wasn't just life-changing, it's been completely transformational. Dov shares how dragons are born in fire, and experiences that could potentially destroy you, but instead they can birth purpose, passion, and hunger to champion others to nurture the dragon fire in themselves, in their families, communities, and companies. If you're enjoying this podcast, I invite you to like, share, subscribe, leave us a review. Help us spread the word. I've seen American flowers, they will bloom.